Hello and welcome to episode 83 of A Flatpack History of Sweden, your podcast friend and guide on the road trip through Swedish history. My name is Chris. And my name is Elsa. We're your hosts and today we're going to pick up where we left off in the chronology back in the year 1437 and see how Sweden moved on after the renewed rebellion and political infighting that eventually led to the death of our second rebel leader and noble Erik Puke, or Puke as we like to call him. Yeah, exactly. And Puke is now out of the picture, but his rival, fellow nobleman and man who stops at nothing to get what he wants, Karl Knutson Bunda, or KKB for short, is still very much on the scene. And we'll soon see what he's got up to uh, now, now he's managed to quash Puke and the peasant revolt he led. But first, as always, there's a Swedish phrase of the week. And this phrase is... At anvender borde hengsel och livrem. So that translates to English to use both suspenders and a belt. Isn't belt belte? It, yeah, both. They mean the same thing. Okay. Livrem and belte. They're synonymous, but the phrase is anvender hengsel och livrem. What happens if you said at anvender borde hengsel och belte? Will people be like, what the hell are you doing? You crazy man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they'd probably understand what you mean, but that's not the phrase. No, okay, cool. And uh, those are both two things that you might use to uh, keep your trousers stay in place, um, but using two might be a bit excessive. And that's exactly what the phrase means. It means to be overly cautious, so to use two or more things to protect or assure yourself of something, but to no real benefit. Like you could say, for example, oh, my friend is always so worried when she goes on holiday. She always pays loads of money to take out an extra travel insurance, even though she knows her home insurance includes travel insurance. She använder både hängsle och livrem. She uses both suspenders and a belt. Okay, and you can see the symbolism with the suspenders and belt there, although I guess these days not many people wear suspenders to keep their trousers up. Uh, that is, of course, the American version of the word. In the home of the English language, we would say braces instead of suspenders, and the same phrase actually exists in English. Belt and braces means to make something extra certain. But that's a little less excessive than the Swedish phrase. Like In English, you would use it to make doubly certain, make sure, and extra security rather than excessive to the point of pointlessness. Um, so there's a bit of a difference there. Yeah, it's interesting. And I've never really seen the point of braces or suspenders, call them whatever you want, or belts, really. I mean, just buy trousers that fit you in the first place. Don't buy them too big so that you then need implements like suspenders or belts to keep them in place. Well, it's slightly different in men's trousers. They're often designed to have belts with them. But uh, yeah, either way, maybe don't use uh, braces and a belt literally or figuratively. Before we start the episode, we'd like to say thank you to a bunch of people who got in touch recently, and even in real life. We actually met up with Roberto, the host of both Tsar Power, where he ranks the rulers of Russia with Brendan, and the history of Sakatvelo, Georgia, uh, when we were both in Washington, D.C. the other month. Uh, so shout out to Roberto, he gave us a bit of a tour. We went to the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum and ate some great both Cuban and Georgian food, which was the best. It was an 
excellent day with Roberto. Thank you so much for taking the time to see us and do check his podcasts out. Sandy got in touch with us uh, about our very first special episode, the one about Swedish civilian dog tags. Sandy's born here in Sweden around the same time as we both are, and not only has she also got a pair of dog tags, but she has two. She moved towns as a young child and so got a second one when moving to the new place. So that's super interesting. She also unfortunately doesn't remember hearing the Anskal song in school that I'm wrecking my brain trying to figure out if it was a real thing or something I made up. Yeah, it definitely sounds like you made it up. <laughs> but thanks for getting in touch, Sandy. It's a really cool thing to have, the dog tags, and a fun story to tell that you have two of them. And uh, Sandy also gave us a great Swedish phrase, which we'll use in a few episodes' time, so stay tuned for that one. And finally, someone else who got in touch was Lee from Kalamazoo in Michigan about one of our past phrases of the week. So let's talk about that now instead of waiting until the end of the episode. Yeah, and so Lee wrote, Hi friends, just listening to your episode on intelligent speech, uh, which was the one about World War II and Sweden, and wanted to add my two cents on the phrase of the week. There's no bad weather, only bad clothes. I live in Michigan in the Midwest of America, and winter can last into April around here, so our version is something you can hear any Midwestern mother say, take a sweater, it might get cold. So it sounds like we have similar climate to Sweden. Much love, Lee. And uh, yeah, that's very similar to uh, the Swedish phrase. Yeah, and can I also say your hometown? What an excellent name. Kalamazoo. I'd like to live in a place called Kalamazoo. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And you were also in New York also before uh, we met up in Washington. I was. And speaking of similarities between the American Midwest and Sweden, I went to Ellis Island and that was amazing. I posted some photos uh, to our Facebook and Twitter pages, but in case you missed those or you aren't on social media, I'll give you a brief summary of my trip. I was in New York visiting a friend and I've always really wanted to go to Ellis Island because I know that I had family members that when they emigrated to the US came through Ellis Island in the early 1900s. Basically, my great-grandfather was one of 12 children. Which is a lot. Yeah, also quite common for families in rural Sweden back then. Actually, his family or his siblings, they're quite telling of what life was like for poor people in rural Sweden at the time. So out of 12 siblings, six survived to adulthood, and out of those six, three emigrated to the US. So you could really see what their lives would have been like with that breakdown of what happened to them. And when did they move to America? Uh, I don't know the exact year, but early 1900s. As in the decade? Yeah. And so I know they came through Ellis Island and eventually settled somewhere around Boston, I believe. And they had some stuff about Swedish immigrants in the museum there. They had loads about Swedish immigrants, Scandinavian immigrants, the whole sort of history of immigration and emigration and slavery and settlement. It's really, really interesting. I, If you're ever in New York City or the New York area, do try and go check it out. You get a ferry from Battery Park, the 
southern tip of Manhattan out there. The same ferry that also takes you to the Statue of Liberty. The old, what used to be, like where they received emigrants as they disembarked from uh, from the ships, that is now a museum. Yeah, and uh, on the first day you couldn't even see the Statue of Liberty, right? <laughs> yeah, it was a bit crazy. We, I was in New York when there was this great big smoke overtaking the whole city, basically drifting down from uh, all the horrible forest fires that's been going on in Canada. So yeah, one day the air quality was pretty horrendous and I couldn't see the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, and this was the first week in June, so it's a while ago now by the time this episode's released. And very quickly, just before we um, get on with this episode, thank you to everybody who listened and talked about the last episode, the tangent time with Quirini's epic voyage and many shipwrecks and all that kind of stuff. It was just one of those things that we had to cover when we found it. It was so exciting, so fun to talk about. And yeah, a bit of a sort of not really collaboration with the podcast Beyond the Breakers, but uh, certainly something that they would maybe cover. Uh, They're a great podcast that I've been binging a lot recently about shipwrecks and all that kind of stuff. So uh, check those out if you want more along the theme of our latest Tangent Time episode. Yes, but for now, let's head back to 1437. As you may remember, the exact circumstances surrounding Puke's death are a bit unclear, but by February 1437, he is dead, and with his death, the peasant revolt he led dies down, partly because they've now lost their leader and figurehead, and partly because KKB's forces do a thorough job as they sweep through the counties in central Sweden that formed the heartland of the revolt and put an end to any remaining peasant armed forces. A few weeks after Puke's death, around Easter of the same year, the Swedish council calls a meeting in Strängnäs. The council, which is made up of noblemen and powerful clergymen, has recently succeeded in getting rid of King Emmerich, who was limiting their power with his dictatorial ruling style and insistence on having people loyal to him, who were mostly foreigners, in local control through being bailiffs in castles. But they can't seem to shake off the other thing that limits their power and freedom to what they want to do, and that's namely those pesky peasants. Since the Engelbrecht Rebellion began three years earlier, the peasants have continued to make their case, pitchforks and crossbows in hand, first against the king, but now he's gone, it's with the puke dispute against the nobility. In the last couple of years, the Swedish peasantry had proven themselves a force to be reckoned with. The nobility is realising that they can't ignore this, or if they do, they will keep taking up arms and fight. And these days, a peasant fighting is posing quite a serious threat. A simple crossbow shooting an ironclad arrow, which was the peasant's weapon of choice in the 1430s, could penetrate a knight with armour or hit a horse, which is what the nobility used, from a distance of 250 metres. The peasants also began to wear simple but efficient body armour that protects the torso. They didn't all have access to this protection, but some did, and that made them dangerous in close combat fighting too, since they were better protected and could therefore continue fighting for longer. We've seen time and time again in the battles that took place during these rebellions that whilst the royalty and nobility can rely on better weapons and tactics, and they've got the opportunity to be on horseback, 
A peasant army using their crossbows and employing guerrilla-style tactics are not to be ignored, but rather have to be controlled, or at least that's how the nobility see it. They don't want the peasants interfering with them being rich and powerful and ruling the country. So in order to prevent any further peasant rebellions, the council sits down in Strengness and drafts the Strengness Statute, a sort of okay, let's draw a line here and move on type of document for Sweden going forward. In terms of the peasantry, this document applies a little bit of carrot and a lot of stick. The main carrot, or well, let's be honest, the only carrot in the Strengness statute, was that taxes were indeed lowered. Way, finally. Yes, this is the main issue that the peasants have been arguing for, or taking up arms for, since the series of revolts began. The Lagerskatt, the legal tax, was kept at the same level, but that was generally seen as fine, because that was the original tax that peasants had always paid to the king or the state. And after all, as we've seen, the peasants in Sweden were in a way quite conservative. They didn't rebel to install a brave new world order. On the contrary, they rebelled to make sure things went back to the way they were, back to the good old days of St. Eric and all that sort of stuff. So paying the Lagerskatt, the original tax, that was fine because that's what they'd always done. But it was the additional taxes that had been added on top of the Lagerskat that were the problem, and now these were to be cut by a third. And this was actually exactly what Engelbrecht Engelbrechtson had argued for when he first gathered the peasantry in Dalarna and Vestmanland to take up arms against the king. So three and a bit years later, after a lot of fighting and having his head split in two, you could argue that Engelbrecht finally had achieved what he'd always wanted. This tax cut was indeed a benefit for the peasants and arguably a sign of success in their revolts, but it is the one carrot they get from the Strengness statute. After this comes the sticks. The statute limits the peasantry's right to take weapons to public places. In particular, they're not allowed to take them to things, the law court, or to markets. Basically, they're not allowed to take weapons anywhere where they gather in large groups. In one way, looking at this with our 21st century eyes, you could say that that's quite sensible. Restricting weapons in places where there are a lot of people and where emotions and discussions could grow heated might indeed be a good health and safety protocol. But the Slingness statue only restricts one group in society's right to do this. So the argument is easily made that this was the nobility and clergy making sure that when the peasants gathered and maybe discussed their grievances, they wouldn't have the means to immediately act on it with any form of violence because they wouldn't have any weapons nearby. Considering how rural Sweden was at the time and how great the distances are, having to go back home and get your crossbow before going off to fight your local nobleman over taxes, that would uh, make quite a strong obstacle for the peasants in when they're trying to put up this violent resistance on the spot. The other main thing that is stated in the Strengner statute is the restriction on property rights and movements of the peasants. Peasants were restricted from buying land that was owned by the nobility and buying property in towns. 
In fact, the statute went as far as preventing peasants from resettling in towns and stated that if a peasant was found living in a town when he or she was known to be living on a farm or in a village, then they were to be brought back to where they came from. This significant restriction on the freedom of movement for the group that constituted the vast majority of the population at the time was partly a move to hinder rebellion and limit the influence peasants could have over politics and the running of the state, but largely it was also a response to a significant labour shortage that Sweden was still suffering from. Because even though it had been over 90 years since the outbreak of the Black Death, the Swedish population hadn't yet recovered to the levels it was before the plague, and the people who were peasants were badly needed to to work the land and thus provide food and goods, not only for themselves but for the whole country. And we mentioned this problem way back in our first episode on the Black Death, and the problem is still around. Sweden also needed its agricultural and mining products for export. It was literally most of what we had to trade. So the Swedish council decided that just like pirates are going to pirate, peasants are going to peasant. Or actually, that's not a word. Peasants are going to farm, but that didn't sound as good. Anyway, I'm not sure that analogy worked. Yeah, well, you, you tried. And when we talk about the Swedish demographics not having fully recovered from the Black Death, even though it's a century since the first outbreak, it's also important to remember that the plague didn't just disappear after that first couple of years. Plagues remain relatively common throughout the Middle Ages. In fact, there's an outbreak in Sweden right now in these very years we're covering in the late 1430s. So that continues to keep the population figures relatively low, and resulting in this labour shortage, that means that the council is essentially deciding that people need to stay where they are and work with what they've always worked with. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the Stringness statute doesn't completely do away with peasant revolts or local outbreaks of violence. In fact, for the remainder of 1437 and throughout 1438, small revolts broke out in the counties of Västergötland, Näke, Dalarna and Värmland and over in Finland. The cause was more often than not that the peasants were unhappy with the local ruler, in most cases the bailiff or commander of the nearest castle, then refused to pay their taxes to him and attacked him or other people that they saw as representatives of the state in their local area. Karl Knudsenbunda, who remained the most vocal person on the Swedish council, wanted to respond to these acts of violence with, well, more violence. His answer seems to always have been, crush them, when he was faced with any kind of opposition. But the majority of the rest of the council seemed to have favoured negotiations, so the council did tend to opt for talks to deal with these smaller outbreaks of local peasant uprisings. However, since Karl Knutsonbunde was such a powerful figure, and because he was a large landowner himself, there were also occasions where his crush-them attitude did prevail. Like when he decided to set an example shortly after the execution of Puke, when peasants in Östergötland had risen up and killed Jösse Eriksson during the Puke dispute, which we mentioned in the last episode. KKB made them pay a steep fine for having rebelled and committed the murder. However, it's hard to overlook the blanket insincerity of KKB's reasoning here, since he himself had joined Engelbrecht in the initial rebellion against King Erik 
a revolt that had been sparked by peasant rebelling against the draconian rule of Jose Eriksson as foreign bailiff of Westeros Castle. And now KKB is making the peasants who rose up and killed the same man pay a harsh fine for what they did whilst he's enjoying the benefits to his own status of that initial revolt. KKB's unscrupulous nature comes more and more across as time goes by. And like you were saying, he's utterly inconsistent in his opinions and what he bases his decisions on. An example of this is when he, uh, only a year after he set this example against rebelling with the peasants in Jutland, and whilst in the council he argues for this hit-them response to local uprisings, he then actually supports a peasant uprising in Finland. We don't know the details too much, but at some point in 1438, a group of Finnish peasants come to see the council to argue for having their taxes lowered. When nothing comes of it, they return home and rebel against the commander of V-Boy Castle, their local representative of state power, whose job it was to suppress the revolt and collect their taxes. The rebellion failed, and the leading figures had to escape across the Bay of Finland to Reval in modern-day Estonia. In this case, we know KKB supported the rebellion because he didn't like the commander of V-Boy Castle, but uh, it still didn't succeed. So, in KKB's book, it wasn't about what you did or why you did it, but whether it served his purposes or not. Yeah, exactly. He's one of those kind of guys. And Sweden, and by extension Finland, aren't the only parts of the Kalmar Union that are seeing continued local uprisings. Norway is also experiencing a wave of them, but perhaps more importantly for the future of the entire region, the Danish council is increasingly feeling like they've had enough of King Eric and his way of ruling. This was evident in the meeting with the Swedish council in Kalmar in 1436, where instead of playing the two councils against each other as the king had originally planned, the Danish council became increasingly inspired by the Swedish council and listened to their reasons for rebelling against the king. As you may remember from our previous episode, the king had failed to get to a planned meeting in Söderköping because he was shipwrecked on Gotland, but then he continued to hide out on Gotland, and from there he tries to make Visboy Castle the seat of power for his arguably failing rule over the Kalmar Union. And that's Visboy on Gotland rather than Viboy in Finland. Very similar names there, but there's an S in the one on Gotland, Visboy. Yeah, there's a very slight difference there. And this is when things really start to go wrong for Eric, because the Danish council are particularly annoyed by the fact that he has given several Danish castles to his nephew and the man who wants to be his heir, that's Duke Bogoslav of Pomerania, and to other Pomerania dukes too for that matter. Just like the Swedes who don't like all the foreigners that Eric has put in power in Sweden, the Danes are increasingly not liking how much of their local power and wealth is being distributed by the king to these foreign Pomeranian dukes. In the spring of 1438, King Eric goes as far as insisting Bogislav be officially declared his heir, to which the Danish council replies, Nej, glem det in augante rovbanen. Which is Danish and translates to, no, forget it, you arrogant butt banana. (laughs) (laughs) Or, well, butt is a nicer way of phrasing it. Rov is actually an expletive in both Danish and my local dialect from southern Sweden, and it's referring to a person's behind. Yeah, I think the listeners can fill in the blanks. But is rovbanan actually a phrase in, in Danish then? 
Yeah, yeah, it is a real phrase. Uh, I remember in Predator, you know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, when he says, you're one ugly mother veffer, that's translated to you're one ugly butt banana in Danish. Yeah, or in Arnold Schwarzenegger-ish. <laughs> you're one ugly butt banana. <laughs> yeah. In general, Danish is a bit obsessed with the butt. A lot of the insults in Danish are somehow related to the butt. Anyway, back to the Danish council and King Eric. Who's a big butt. Banana. Yeah. <laughs> so at midsummer 1438, the king doesn't show up for yet another meeting in Kalmar where he was supposed to have been to discuss his position with both the Danish and the Swedish councils, even though he's not even king in Sweden anymore. Instead, the councils go ahead and agree between themselves on their own that they will, from now on, uphold the Kalmar Union and put statutes in place to limit royal power across the Union for the future. And they're talking about the future for when a new king comes in because they've now both decided that basically King Eric is a big butt banana and he needs to leave and be replaced. A new union treaty, which includes the wording from the original treaty and the additions the Swedes had wanted to put in about royal power in 1436, that's put together and agreed on and signed by both councils. This treaty spells the end of the kind of far-reaching powers of the monarchy in the Kalmar Union that had been enjoyed by Margareta and then Eric, and leaves more power in the hands of the councils. Later on in the autumn, the Danish council invites King Erik's other nephew, a man called Christoffer, to Denmark. He is the son of the king's sister, Katharina, who Queen Margareta also brought over from Pomerania when they were kids, and who they had intended to uh, marry Philippa's brother Henry in a big sibling double marriage. But as we know, that never happened, and Katharina instead married the German Count Johann of Fals from Bavaria. And so that's how this Christoffer has come into existence. I think we should just call him Chris from now on. That's just because you want your name to feature in the story. Yeah. In English, it would be Christopher, yeah. but he is known here and in Denmark and in Norway as Christopher. Yeah, but I hate that. It's when people call me that at work and like my ears bleed because that's it's not, not my name. But it's not about you. You're not a know, but... Bavarian duke in the 1400s. Aren't I? Surprise. <laughs> Just because this person vaguely shares your name. Right, we're calling him Christopher. Against okay. all of the rules of the podcast where we call people by their local name, I can't put up with him being called Christopher because it's a horrible name. Okay, can I say that his name was Christopher, but I'm going to have to go along with this because Chris has twisted my arm into that he's now going to be referred to as Christopher yeah, of Bavaria. Yeah, until something else may or may not happen with him. Anyway, he is 21 years old and, like we said, a Bavarian duke thanks to his father's dynasty. The Danish council wants to negotiate a takeover of power from Eric, with Christopher as the new king, agreeing to these new union treaties the councils have just created. Christopher is more than willing to accept this, although he's a bit worried about what Eric might do, seeing that he and his mother are constantly being opposed by Eric. That's why Eric prefers Bogoslav, because he's against this Christopher chap. But the Danes on the council basically tell Christopher not to worry too much about this Eric chap, and on the 23rd of June, 
Christopher is elected Rijksverstandere, a kind of ruler but not quite king. Uh, I guess in English we might call him as an imperial regent or chancellor of the kingdom, but not really the chancellor of the council. It's a bit of a confusing, nebulous title, but it's basically sort of like mini-king. Yeah, it's a tricky title to translate, especially since the Swedish term is then similar to what was used much later to describe Nazi and fascist dictators in Europe, so it doesn't have a nice ring to it. But Christopher is now king in all but name of Denmark, more or less. It's a kind of gentle power takeover from King Erik, who of course isn't happy about this. And around the same time as Christopher is invited over to Denmark, this is in the autumn of 1438, Karl Knutson Bunder is elected to the same position by the council in Sweden. He'd left his former position of Rikshervitsman, more of a commander-in-chief military role, in the same year, in March of 1438, because he was disappointed that the council had reached a settlement with King Eric. It's unclear what that settlement was, because there's no surviving records, but it certainly wasn't an agreement to have Eric back as king. It's more of a sort of mutual non-aggression pact, we'll leave you alone, you leave us alone kind of agreement, but uh, KKB didn't like this. Perhaps, considering what we know of his ruthlessness and fondness for using violence, KKB thought that this was too weak a statement against the former king. Either way, he attends another council meeting in Stockholm in October, and there, in what is described as more or less a coup, he was named Riksföreståndare, this king-in-all-but-name title. Oh, and on a side note, just before attending that meeting, he sneaks in time for a quick marriage. Uh, a quick wedding, he marries Katarina Karlsdotter Gummeshuvud. Good for him, uh, it's a fun name there. And in fact, uh, they'll go on to have a very happy marriage, resulting in a total of nine surviving children, four sons and five daughters, so the KKB name will live on. That's good for them. But yeah, the coup-like meeting that makes KKB the Riksföreståndare isn't the only political trouble brewing in the ranks of the Swedish nobility. And so whilst Christopher can go ahead and be elected Riksföreståndare and after that king in Denmark, this process is delayed in Sweden, even though the two countries had decided to do the same thing at the same time at the meeting in Kalmar, so as to preserve the union. It's worth mentioning, just so you think we haven't forgotten that there was a third kingdom in the Union, that the same will also take place in Norway, but events there take a little longer to unfold. Yeah, and even though by 1439 King Eric has, for all intents and purposes, lost power across the Kalmar Union, and he's been officially deposed in both Sweden and Denmark, he clings on to Visby in his so-called Wolf's Lair at Visby Castle. He still commands a sizable navy and engages in piracy, both to support himself and to disrupt and show that he's still a presence to be reckoned with around the Baltic Sea. As we'll see, he will continue to lay claim to the thrones of the Kalmar Union for the foreseeable future. After all, he was the rightful heir of Margareta, the founder of the Kalmar Union. He can't just be pushed aside by a few angry nobles, even if he has dropped from triple king down to a pirate king. <laughs> So what was it, though, that's causing this delay in Sweden, taking more time and putting Christopher in power, and what is creating this political unrest? 
Well, it's all kicking off within the ranks of the high nobility, where many also hold various offices within the ruling of the state. And it centres around three main characters, or five actually, but three of them are brothers on the same side. One of the main characters is, of course, Karl Knutzenbunder. The other is the senior statesman and drops, Christian Nielsen, who's been around for a while now. And the third, fourth, and fifth are the brothers Bengt, Niels, and Boo, Stenson, Nat, or Dog. We'll just call them the Stensons, or the Sons of Sten. Uh, in Swedish, they're called the Stensoner, Sons of Sten. They are the commanders of the important Kalmar Castle, and also control Stegerboy Castle near Sørdersherping in Östergötland, a castle we will mention a lot more in our next episode. Karl Knudsson Bonde and Christian Nilsson, who as Dots and Mask respectively, have formed the core of the Swedish state since the deposition of King Erik, they are increasingly drifting apart. Christian Nilsson is strongly in favour of the Kalmar Union, and works hard to get the Union back together and move forward as one now Erik is gone. KKB, on the other hand, is less fussed with the Union and less fussed about agreeing with the Danes and Norwegians, and more interested in, well, securing the most power possible for himself. And at this point, his power base in Sweden is very strong. He's got people loyal to him in local power by governing every castle in Sweden except Kalmar and Stegeboy. These two exceptions to his complete dominance are bothering KKB. He mistrusts the Stenson brothers, because they've been given land and castles by King Eric, and in KKB's mind, not sufficiently distanced themselves from him now he's been deposed. Maybe King Eric is going to try and sneak back into power through the Stensons. As 1438 goes on, this split with Christian Nilsson and the Stenson brothers on one side opposing the complete domination of KKB on the other side and KKB wanting to get rid of any threat to his power, well, this boils over into an all-out conflict that is sometimes referred to as the war against the sons of Sten or Kriget mot Stensonerna. During 1438, the Sons of Stan have been complaining to the council, which is of course dominated by KKB, that they're not pleased with the amount of land they've been given after the council kicked out King Erik and split the land previously controlled by foreigners between them. But their complaints are to no avail. Remember, another knight that had also complained about this has been executed for his troubles. This leads to the Stensons forming a more outright faction against KKB, which also includes Christian Nilsson. To make matters even more complicated, one of the brothers, Nils Stensson Nattokdag, is actually married to KKB's half-sister. It goes to show you what a scheming mess this high nobility really was. Aware that this faction opposing him is growing, and when Christian Nielsen doesn't show up for a meeting that's planned in Sørdershopping, KKB thinks that something is afoot and decides to act. So around the new year of 1438-39, he sends an armed force to Kalmar, whilst he himself heads to Ellsborg Castle, whose bailiff, the knight Lauren Snarkenborg, he also distrusts somewhat. 
The Stensons turn to King Eric for help, or deposed King Eric, and he sees this as an opportunity to take power back in Sweden, so he immediately accepts. For his future Swedish council on his glorious return, he names Neil Stenson Mask, the role that KKB has held, and sends his forces and supplies from Gotland to help the Stensons faction in their fight against KKB's forces. The Sons of Stern are initially successful in Östergötland, and they manage to convince the Norwegian council to send a force to relieve Elsborg too. As a thanks to the Norwegians for doing so, wannabe King Eric, who's actually still king in Norway, so I guess he is still King Eric, agrees to name a new Drots in Norway, and this is a position he's purposefully kept vacant for years so as not to risk anyone there rising up to a position of power that might threaten him. The man he chooses for the role is married to the daughter of a Pomeranian knight, though, so Eric is assured of his loyalty. At the same time as all of this is kicking off, Christian Nilsson has been celebrating Epiphany at his estate Revelsta in Uppland. On the 13th of January, one of KKB's knights, Klaus von Lange, arrives with a letter from KKB saying that as Dots, Christian Nilsson is urgently needed in Skinninge, where KKB himself was. The letter was nothing but a false pretense to lure Christian Nilsson out, and in the end it wasn't even needed, because taking a page from his master's book, I suppose, von Lange decided to just use brute force instead. The Karl Chronicle and the 17th century history book Chronica Regni Gotturum describes how Christian Nilsson's men were overpowered, which was supposedly really easy because they were all drunk, and Christian Nilsson himself was dragged naked out to the yard. That's embarrassing for him. He was then taken as a prisoner to Vesteros Castle. This has become known as Överfallet i Revelsta, the attack in Revelsta in Swedish history books. This is pretty intense. There's really no safety or loyalty in 15th century Sweden, that's for sure. Especially not when Karl Knudsson Bunde is involved. And to be honest, Christian Nilsson was siding against KKB, so what do you expect? So for KKB, all that remains is the Stenson brothers that are out there resisting him. This conflict is one of the first examples where we see propaganda being used by both sides to win over the hearts and minds of the local population and convince them to fight for something that essentially doesn't really concern them. After all, if we look at this objectively, this is really nothing more than an argument between a group of powerful noblemen that's boiled over to open conflict because they all have access to weapons and personal mini-armies. One example of a piece of propaganda that survived to the modern day is a song, or a visa, which is like a poetic Swedish folk song written by Bishop Thomas in Strengness, who was loyal to KKB, and it's about this conflict, and in particular about a council meeting that takes place in Stockholm at the end of April. The song is called Frihetsvisan, or The Song of Freedom, and according to the song, freedom is being able to follow Karl Knutsenbunda. And, uh, how about you give us a taste of this song, Orsa? Well, I can't actually sing it, because whilst the lyrics are preserved, there are no notes or instructions of what the melody was supposed to be. Several Swedish composers have later on written music to the lyrics, but yeah, that's hundreds of years later. But I can read out the first verse if you like, because it's the most poetic. 
Frihet är det bästa ting som sökas kan all världen kring, den frihet rätt kan bära. Vill du vara dig själv och huld så älskar frihet mer än guld, till frihet följer ära. So in English that would be, and this is freely translated by me, not an official poetry translator, it would be freedom is the best thing that can be found all the world around, the freedom that is carried upon right. If you want to be benevolent to yourself, then love freedom more than gold, because with freedom comes honor. Yeah, a real poetry translator would have translated the rhyming from the original <laughs> Swedish. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I don't have a degree in neither English or Swedish. I'm just doing my best here. Yeah, I think it was a good translation anyway. Thank you. And the conflict with the Stensons actually dies down a little bit, maybe because of this lovely poem that's been written, but it's partly thanks to some skillful mediation conducted by the now master negotiator Hans Kröpling, who famously acted as mediator between King Eric and the Swedish Council like, sort of first time around a couple of episodes ago. But it's also due to King Eric being dealt quite a severe blow when he finally comes to terms with the fact that he's officially been deposed as King of Denmark. On the 25th of July, Eric leaves Gotland to Stegerboy Castle that's by now been under siege by KKB forces for eight weeks. Thanks to the Carl Chronicle, we know a little bit about how the castle defended itself. The Chronicle states that the castle's garrison had light artillery and arrows, as well as 14 Thurglara, a type of light breech-loading gun. The defenders were commanded by a German artillery master called Rodenboy, so uh, yeah, the defences of these castles are getting quite advanced. At the same time as the former king, but still wannabe king, is heading to Stegerboy, he also sends a letter to Vardstena Abbey, saying that as the protector of the abbey, he wants to hold peaceful negotiations there. But by then, KKB has already mustered an even larger armed force and is doing some serious saber-rattling to make sure that the former wannabe king and the Stensons understand that they are outnumbered. Before Erik can settle in a Stegeboy and continue the defense of the castle, the siege is lifted and negotiations begin instead. In the end, negotiations take place in the village of Arkesund on the coast of Östergötland. Erik and the Stensons are on the back foot and the negotiations are much less favourable to them than they had hoped. After all, KKB does have a larger army and that's sort of all that counts. However, before anything that was agreed on in the negotiations had been finalised and come into force, the Swedish Council gather for a meeting again, and on the 29th of September, the Council agrees that Karl Knutsen Bunda, in his role as Rick's Hervitsman, will take over the powers previously held by the King. So now Karl Knutsen Bunda is King in all but name, and there's going to be no return for ex-King Eric. At another meeting later in the year, the Stanson brothers agree to an arbitration and lose their control of Stegerboy Castle. One brother, Nils Stenson, will however resume the fighting in Östergötland, but is soon captured and dies of the plague. During 1440, both Stegeboy and Kalmar are officially handed over to the council. Which uh, in reality means Kalknuts on Bunda. Yeah. And so in conclusion, that was a lot of fighting and disruption, but in the end, KKB comes out on top once again. Yeah, in a nutshell, that's what it was. 
In our next chronological episode, we will see what happens next. Will Christopher become king of Sweden as well? After all, the Danes and the Swedes have agreed to uphold the union and act in unison when it comes to who is elected king. Or will the Swedish nobility keep fighting and wreaking havoc with KKB wanting to run everything in Sweden himself? Yeah, well, we'll have to catch up on that in two episodes' time, because next time we will spend the entire episode doing a deep dive into all these castles that we've been talking about recently. What purpose did they have? What was the role of them in ruling and running medieval Sweden? And what was it like to live in one? Yes, that will be super interesting. But before we go, we have received two five-star reviews that we would love to read out. The first one is from Eric V., or Eric the Fifth, maybe, on Apple Podcast. No spoilers, five stars. Flashback to over 500 days ago. My family has decided to move to Sweden, and as a voracious audiobook listener, I went searching for a good History of Sweden audiobook to listen to. I didn't find that audiobook, instead I found a flatpack history of Sweden. At this point, I'm living in Sweden, working in Denmark, and all caught up on Swedish history into the 15th century. There is a sweet satisfaction of listening to King Eric's decision to tax all ships travelling through the Baltic Sea as I take the train directly over the waterway in question. You don't need to live in Scandinavia to enjoy this podcast, though. The hosts are clearly doing this as a labour of love. Their passion for history and storytelling is clear and you can tell where they have worked hard to restrain the impulse to share the sights they have been seeing from wandering down every possible path of history branching out from Sweden. I've never reviewed a podcast before, because unless you've listened to all the episodes, it feels like reviewing half a book. I know that logic isn't sound, but I'm very happy to have listened to all of the episodes of this podcast that are available. The only problem is that I'm only caught up until the early 15th century. Hopefully this Kalmar Union thing is built to last and makes it into the early 21st century. Don't tell me if you know, I'm waiting for Elsa and Chris to fill me in. That's excellent. Yeah, that's from Eric V from uh, Apple Podcasts, who I am also pretty sure is a certain Eric who uh, messages us occasionally on Twitter. So thank you so much for uh, sending that review, Eric. It's brilliant. And uh, we had another one from a listener on Apple Podcasts from Charles O, who I believe, again, is another person from Twitter. So thank you so much for this brilliant review, Charles, which is funny, informative, always a delight. Uh, five stars, of course, and it says, This podcast has been a wonderful introduction to my new adopted home, and the degree of information packed into an episode is truly impressive. In fact, I've now had several conversations with native Swedes who said that I seem to know far more about their country's history than them, so long as the conversation stays in the 14th century and before. Which is really just to say, I really need Chris and Orsa to keep things up so I can start holding my own when it comes to the House of Vasa, the Reformation, and beyond. Uh, yeah, so thank you so much. That's a brilliant review, and uh, I get the same at work actually Swedish people to ask me like Chris who was that king who uh, locked all the barns and did these things <laughs> and, and stuff like that so glad we can help with that yeah I mean of course we appreciate all listeners equally but like you said hearing from people who listen to the podcast because you've moved to Sweden and want to learn more about your new home country that really means a lot 
Yeah, and after all, that was one of the main reasons why we started the podcast for me as an outsider to learn more about Swedish history and, yeah, looking for that audiobook or podcast about Swedish history and it didn't exist, so we made it ourselves. So, uh, yeah, it's been great fun and super glad that we're able to help uh, other people in our position. Yeah, really, like I said, it's a real pleasure to hear those reviews and get those messages. And if you want to do like Eric and Charles and leave a review or a rating, please do so on whatever platform you listen to us on. It helps us get noticed and it is very nice to hear from all of you listeners. And we've actually just received our 100th review, our 100th rating on uh, iTunes. So uh, thank you so much. We were at 4.9 stars out of 5 over those 100 reviews. I think there was one person who gave a low review but didn't actually write a review, just did the rating. So uh, yeah. Also, Diego the dog did deduct one star for not enough dog content, which we have since rectified with our special episode. Yeah, but I think the review was actually still five stars. But, okay. But still, yes. And if you want to get in touch directly, you find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search our name and we'll come up. Or you can email flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. And you can find our website, a aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com, where we've got all the things we talk about all the time, family trees, episode pictures, and all that stuff. Uh, it's on my to-do list over the summer to, to update the website with the Swedish phrases, so hopefully that will be done soon. <laughs> yeah, and until next time, take care, and don't be a rovbanan. Don't be a butt banana. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>